so un-American. Uh, how dare them think they could do that? And so often that's the lie that we hear, Lord. And I pray that even in a time of sickness, that they will look to you as the author and perfecter of their faith, um, that they could get good rest and you would heal. You're the great physician. We rest in you. Um, so we put them in your hands. Uh, we love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So over the past two weeks, we have gone through Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. And Hebrews 3 is a, a passage that we found that is actually crying out to us that one of the most important things and most vital things that we can do as followers of Jesus Christ is not to look perfect. It frees us from this like... like desire that we have to put up this front. And it actually tells us in chapter 3 to confess our sins, to come before a holy God, to, to lay it out. It actually in, in encourages us to not only confess sin to a holy God, but actually to each other. And what do we say when we say sin? It's the failure to reflect God in our thoughts, actions, and being. It's not just our actions. It's not just these, these works that we can say, yep, that's sinful. I got to fix that. I got to fix that. I got to fix that because I have a lot of those that I can fix. But it's also rooted deep down in our thoughts and rooted real deep down even into our being. And so those are the things that we've got to root out and figure out. And we don't just do that on our own. We do that also by confessing, which is agreeing with God that we've got a problem, but also talking to a brother and sister in Christ that can walk that path with us, that can connect with us. And then when we do that, it then moves into to chapter 4 and actually frees us into this beauty of tackling the restlessness that we constantly experience where we're constantly trying to, to earn or do or go. And I think a lot of times we want to go and earn and do. Why? Because we don't really want to deal with the root of the problem. We want to cover it up with efforts and achievements and productivity and purpose and passion and anything else you want to throw in there. And last week we were encouraged to, to come before God and realize he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He has checked all the boxes that he needed to, and he provides us rest. He actually says on the cross, what is one of his last phrases? But it is finished. It's done. We can rest. All the work is complete. But two weeks ago, I saw it on your face because I saw it on my face in the mirror. Last week, I saw it on your face because I saw it on my face in the mirror. But preacher, really? 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 Like, I, I know what you were thinking. Because as I was preparing these sermons, I was thinking the exact same thing. Really? You really want me to rest? Rest, rest. We talking about rest right now? Yes, we're talking about rest. And you really want me to confess? You really want me to admit my inadequacies? You really want me to do that? Do you realize what kind of, what, what people would say about me or what people would think about me? Preacher, really. The, the author of Hebrews, the preacher in Hebrews, talking about something today that is really hard for us to do because it's actually a cultural thing for us. 
And so we're going to kind of start this with, with a quote from uh, a, a good old leadership book. If you just want a really good leadership book, if you're in a position where you have to lead people, this is a strong option. Actually, if you ever want to talk to someone about this book, talk to Tyler Abernathy. He will talk your head off about this book. He loves Stephen M. R. Covey, and this is what Stephen M. R. Relationship, team, family, organization, nation, economy, and civilization throughout the world. One thing that if removed will destroy the most powerful government, the most successful business, the most thriving economy, the most influential leadership, even the greatest friendship, the strongest character, the deepest love. But on the other hand, if this is developed and leveraged, the one thing that the one thing has potential to create unparalleled success and prosperity in every dimension of life, a lot of promises there, yet it is the least understood, most neglected, and most underestimated possibility of our time. And that one thing is what? What is it? Trust. It is trust. The one thing that we're going to look at today is trust. That's what the Hebrews preacher is driving us to today. So as I was studying for this sermon, I came across this really cool study uh, by, my, by Mark Burgess. So Mark Burgess is this theoretician, which I didn't even know what that was. I had to look it up, but he's a theoretician. He's a practitioner in the area of information systems whose work is focused largely on distributed information infrastructure. Like this, like way over my head. But in this study, he called it Trust Semantic Learning. He highlights the role of trust in our online and cyber online and cyber online and cyber enhanced secu- uh, society. So that's that's the world in which we live. That's the culture, the, the water that we swim in. Um, he says, if you can't trust, this is what happens: is you actually have to pay very close attention in order to verify and catify and categorize all stimuli that comes your way. Which, of course, if you have to verify and categorize everything, it becomes very what he said expensive. This actually, this verifying requires our attention and our time and our effort, and it becomes like a tax that requires us to determine two things, all right? Number one, when we receive stimuli in any way, shape, or form, people, uh, uh, things that have happened, places that we go, we have to determine, number one, trustworthiness. So one way to determine trustworthiness is we rely on past behavior to, to, to judge trustworthiness. The old statement goes, past performance is the best indicator for future results. All right, so that's what we sense is we still have to borrow opinions at times. And we have to make quick assessments that often are flawed based on how we feel. So even in our deepest efforts to determine trustworthiness, at times we can see that there's a flaw there. Well, when there's a flaw, then we go into the other cycle of this, which is becomes mistrust. Asked over and over and over again to verify. And so it's, it's normal for us that we comment on trustworthiness. Opposite side of the same coin of trust. We don't think about mistrust very often. We don't want to go there. We don't want to, we don't want to admit that. And so what we realize is trust clearly plays a role in shaping society. Shaping who we are and what we do and how we think and how we act. But it actually turns out it doesn't, it doesn't work exactly how we think it does. Because what we do is we have in our society this like preoccupation with moral issues. We, we long for goodness is what we look for. 
And so it leaves us a little confused at times. We, we want to think that goodness brings us together, that we galvanize around goodness, and that kind of follows like this Rousseauian-type philosophy from the Romantic period, where we're going we're gonna to come together based on goodness, but that's not actually what data is. According to studies, we don't come together because we trust we actually come together more because we align our intent to mistrust. And so we have a trust problem. Our culture is largely galvanized on what? We want to say trust. Some reasons are some ways an answer for this deep polarization that we experience constantly in our culture. I don't know about you, but I have received a thousand text messages about who not to vote for and why not to vote for them. I don't even know who to vote for because I know not to vote for that person, whoever that person is. Constantly polarizing, pulling apart. What can I, what seed of doubt can I raise to mistrust? Trust anything that I can only trust myself and what I know. Well, if I can only trust myself and what I know, then what becomes the next thing? is I'm going to move in this perpetual cycle of temporary pleasure. I'm going to find a way just to please, or I think a better word for that is actually appease this consternation that I'm feeling in this constant level of mistrust. And I'm going to self-medicate myself. I'm going to comfort myself. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to bubble wrap myself. I'm going to do whatever I can to flee away from this. Now, at the beginning of Hebrews, at the beginning of this series, I presented you five questions, or five, the five E's that I wanted you to pay attention to. Can you guess which one we're going to talk about today? Maybe the examination piece. We're going to press into ourselves and ask ourselves, what am I really trusting what am I really trusting we're going to address that but preacher really really you really think I can confess my sins you really think I can rest really so we're going to ask that question what am I really trusting and so the point today, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you so you can challenge me later if you want to. But because Jesus is trustworthy, that's the argument today. Is Jesus going to be trustworthy? The title is Because Jesus. All of Hebrews points to Jesus' and everything else. Trustworthy. What do we do? But we throw titles of mistrust. Titles of mistrust. Titles of mistrust. Mistrust. And we run as fast as we can to the throne of grace. So let's read it. Let's take in some scripture together as a congregation. So if you would, if you're willing and able, stand with me as we read today's passage. We're going to finish up 4 all the way into uh, chapter 5, verse 10. And I apologize for my voice. I feel great. My voice does not say that right now, though. So I'm hoping not to lose my voice. But if it does, then that's probably a benefit for y'all. So let's read scripture. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For this is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Why? Since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor to himself, but he receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And just as he says also in another passage, (coughs) excuse me, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death as he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, died as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So just as a shameless plug, if you haven't been following the Hebrews reading plan, you can actually check off all the way to 510 because we as a congregation have... We have to figure out, okay, what can we trust? Now, the Greek-style argument actually puts, in some ways, the what before the why. And so that's why the, 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 the request was, hey, go and confess sin, hey, rest... This is why. Well, in the, in the American argument or English argument, what we understand and since the Enlightenment age, we always want the why first. So today we finally get to why. Why do we, why can we confess sins? Why can we rest? And that's what we find out today because we need to figure out what we can trust. And so we have to do some unpacking here because, you know, this Hebrews is written to like urban people who are, were Jews, they converted to Christianity, and so we have to build some meaning here because we're not first century Jews. And so we have to kind of understand what the analogy is here, because there's a good chance there might be someone in here, the first time they've ever heard of a high priest that's not a Catholic priest is here in, in the scripture. And so what is he referring to? And I actually have this really beautiful statue up here. It's, a, it's Aaron depicted by Jacques Berger, um, just a French statue that I thought would just be cool to look at because that's what the uh, great high, or the high priest would wear um, when he would do sacrifices. And so who was the high priest? Well, the high priest was the head of the Israelite priesthood. He was the one that everyone looked to. Or he played a unique role in worship um, conducted in the temple in Jerusalem. So like all priests, he was required to be descended from Aaron, and he had to be of the tribe of Levi. All right, so there was a definitive place that he had to come from. And he was called specifically by God to his role. There were priests that were from the tribe of Levi, and then there was the high priest. And the high priest was called by God. Now, he wore his unique priestly garments and was the only priest to, 
allowed to perform certain ceremonies. And of course, one of these ceremonies was the High Holy Day, which was the Day of Atonement, or one of the High Holy Days, which is the Day of Atonement, where the priest would first humble himself, he would cleanse himself of his personal sins, and then he would enter into the Holy of Holies, which I had, which I had a picture of that, but I don't, and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people, for the sins of the nation of Israel. And the high priest's atonement and the atonement of the people would, would have to happen every year. Every year there was a high holy day. Every year there was the day of atonement. Every year they had to go through this process. And it would happen over and over and over again, always at a designated time. But this high holy day, day of atonement, would, was not necessarily unique beyond it being the high holy day because there were other sacrifices that were offered for sins constantly. And so we see this perpetual offering of sin over and over and over again. First for the priest, second for the people. So it was this constant ritual. Now Hebrews, of course, I just said a little bit ago, is written to Jewish converts. They had grown up embedded in this beautiful system, this beautiful sacrificial system. And they were well acquainted with this illustration of the high priest. The moment you said that, man, they would look up to the temple mount. They would look to see what the high priest is doing. You know, their, their trust was in the high priest, that the high priest would, would come before God and offer sins, and it would offer for the sins of the people, and it would be accepted. That's what they longed. They constantly peeked up over the wall because that was the great high priest or the high priest's job. But the author here is telling them and trying to build to them this argument to say, wait a minute, hold on. There's this reality that what the high priest is doing is great, but there is something that's even better. And who is better but Jesus and his offering is better. For he offered sacrifice for sins once and for all. And actually Leah mentioned that in her reading. He himself stands now as mediator between us and God. There's no need for anyone else to be in this place. We don't have to keep looking over this wall to look and hope what the high priest is doing and if this offering is going to be accepted. But no, Jesus did it once and for all. And then the question to the people is, who else could do this? Who else could do this? But then we have to ask, well, we're not Jewish. We're not first century Jews, so what about us? You know, we don't look to the high priest. We don't look to the practices of the sacrificial system of the early Hebrews. So what do we do? We don't look to those socially acceptable practices. You know, looking to the high priest, it was a thing where God was demonstrating his mercy and his grace constantly to the Israelite people. He wanted to pour that out to them. But you know, one thing we had to realize is it, it, it's not bad. It was incomplete. It didn't fulfill the fullness of what they were longing for because actually, shortly after Hebrews was written, as they're peeking over the wall, there wasn't many more years where they could actually do that because the temple was destroyed. Everything was flipped upside down. Everything was turned over. 
The preacher of Hebrews was preparing them for that. But the thing is, what about us? And that's where we have to ask the question is, how many times do we put our trust just a thing that's just over the wall? How many times do we put our trust in something that is really, really good by social acceptable standards, but it's not God? How often do we attempt to trust things with temporary, that have temporary lasting with long-term expectations? How long do we put that longing that we have into a relationship, into a friendship, into a marriage? How often do we, we have that longing where, man, my kids will finally make me happy? Or we look over the wall of even like individualism. And we're like, man, if I could just be who I am, how I want to be, how I want to live. You know, for younger people, it's, I can't wait till I get out of my parents' house. Maybe you as a, as a professional, it's like, man, I can't wait until I can make the calls and I can make the decisions. Maybe we peek over the wall and we're like, you know what? It's going to be my good works. I said a statement last week that for me, and I'm going to live morally. I'm going to make sure that everybody around me knows that I'm a good person. Is that what I'm putting my trust in? Just being a good person, just being good enough. Am I comparing myself to my neighbor? I'm better than them, so I'm good. I know the person I'm sitting next to right now, I'm better than them. I know what you're thinking. If you were sitting next to me, you'd probably be right. So is that what we put our our trust in? Is it the soothing sensation of success? That was a Jacob thing right there. The soothing sensation of success. Man, I'm going to peek over the wall. I'm going to trust in my success. Or is it my comfort? The other one, the corroding consumption of of comfort. Is that what I'm peeking over the wall for? Is that what I'm trusting? Is that what I'm resting in? How many of these things that we so freely put our trust in has an end game? How many of these things that we put our trust in, that we put all these expectations on, can actually live up to these expectations? Can actually do what we long long for them to do? So often we take experiences and we crush them under the weight of our expectations. We think, man, if we could just move or do or get or receive or whatever it is, that's going to make me whatever. And we realize it just never seems to live up to that expectation. That's what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. So what do we do? What do we do when we realize that the things that we trust or we go to because we mistrust everything else aren't living up to what they need to be living up to. Well, that's why we look to chapter 5 and we start in verse 5. We begin to see, okay, wait a minute. So who checks all these qualification boxes? Who checks, it, who checks and is able to, 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 to do the qualifications and the function of the very thing that I need to trust in? So with this, I want to draw your attention to a, um, 
uh, diagram that I found um, as we were doing some research. It's, it's from the Center for Implementation. So this is a completely third-party like consulting firm that will come into your organization and will help build the culture of your organization. And I thought it was just a really cool thing because, I mean, it's trifecta, trinity. It just kind of goes together, so it kind of had to come from, from God, right? I Googled it, and it was like, Holy Spirit was like, boom, here, right? That's what it was. But it bases, the, the Center for, for Implementation says that the trust trifecta has to have three things for you to trust something. It has to be authentic, it has to be competent, and it has to be able to connect. And I thought it was really cool that we could take a like secular process because I think that what we're ingrained to do and trust and want is universal for us as humans. Why? Because we're made in God's image. And so let's see if the qualifications and the functions of Christ actually fit into even this secular model, which also applies to our spiritual nature. And so let's dive into verse 5. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we have to look at authenticity here. Uh, the Center for Implementation says that authenticity is being authentic, demands courage to be vulnerable and be humble. It's able to understand goals and act accordingly to a set of values. And so here, what do we see in verse 5 through 6? But Jesus is, in fact, God. He was in the beginning. He had every right to do what he wanted. But we see the authenticity of Jesus here on full display by the verses that are referenced here by the Hebrew preacher. We, we go back to Psalm 2-7. What do we see? Jesus is Son. He is Son. He is authentically from the Father proclaiming that Jesus Christ is my Son. He is taking a willing level of submission to the Father while not foregoing any of his godly rights. But he's saying, you are my son. But then he says in Psalm 110.4, which is what the other uh, reference here is, it relates Jesus to being a priest. So what God is doing here, God is setting apart Jesus to be the heavenly high priest. The humble high priest, the one who, remember, takes on his own sins and confesses those and then the sins of the people. But the authenticity here is the beauty that Jesus is willing to humble himself by becoming son in human flesh to go back to think about what we talked about last week in chapter 4, verse 13, and we talked about the violent nature of what was going on in that verse when we put on the specks of grace, we see not us laid bare for our sins, but Jesus authentically the one being laid bare. Laid bare meaning a word where it's to rip back the neck of your victim for death. And so we see Jesus authentically 
being sacrificed. Jesus the one with his body broken. Jesus the one with his blood pouring out. Is he authentic enough to trust? It's a question we have to wrestle with. Did he do enough here? Well, we go to connection next. Connection from the Center of Implementation says, building connection requires shared values. It requires non-judgment, and it requires an, a genuine empathy for another. So we dive into verses 7 and 8. It says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. You know, the, the illustration of the high priest, the high priest offered up gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. But he did it from a posture of humility. Why? Because he was also the same way. He too was a sinful human. And so he had the connection with the people. But how will God do this? How will he connect? How will the one who spoke creation in the being, energy and colors and light and beauty and, and, and all that we see physically, how will he be able to connect with us? Well, what do we see? But Jesus willingly submitted himself to take on human flesh. He took on every single limitation that we have. And then while doing this, he didn't just complain about it, but what did he start doing as the verse says? He offered up prayers and cries with deep emotions. From the deep recesses of his soul, he experienced the same emotions that we do, the same pain that we do, the same feelings that we do, the same hurt that we do. But he went even farther because we have to realize here that he was not only the great high priest who would do the sacrifice, but he was the one on the altar to be sacrificed. So we realize here that Jesus, incarnate Son of God, stared death in the face just like we do. What does that mean? It means the eternal Son of God was ordained to suffer death. Does that qualify him enough to connect with us? Does that qualify him enough in that connection to be trusted? That he knows what we're going through. Then we go to competence. Competence, based on this, requires three traits. Ability, accountability, and reliability. So we see in verses 9 through 10, and having been made perfect... He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Then verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest, it was stamped upon him according to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get a chance to talk about more Melchizedek when we get into chapter 7 in a couple weeks. We see this terminology in once made perfect. And once made perfect, this has to come to realize this is like a play on word sum. It doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. It means that because of Jesus' obedience, God stamped him as perfect because it validated him. Because he was willing to take this step of obedience. So he demonstrated through his actions that he was competently perfect. 
But then we see too that our salvation is for how long? How long does it, how long does it indicate that our salvation is? He became to all those who obey him the source of eternity. It gets crushed every single time, but here Christ is able to provide eternal salvation, which means there's this beautiful principle to it, which means if it lasts forever, it can never be revoked. It can never come to an end. You can never outlive it. You can never do anything beyond what it's offering because it's now and forever. His office for high priest is forever. Is he competent enough for this? Does Jesus sufficiently check the boxes needed to trust him? Can we peek to him and realize, okay, I can trust him? Is he authentic enough? Does he connect enough? Is he competent enough? And this is the beautiful thing about our faith. We can press into these things. I don't want you to say yes just because I'm telling you this. The beautiful thing about discipleship and a discipleship journey is we get to press in and ask questions. We get to come before him. The bar for trust in Christ is super low. It's maddening. It should be so much higher. It should require perfection. And it kind of did. But Jesus was perfect, and he's the one that paid the way for that. But man, we can even with a doubting heart come before Christ, and that's what we talk about next, because man, with our doubting heart, we suffer from a deficiency of trust. It's a cool thing that uh, Covey says later in his book. He says, low trust causes friction. Low trust is the greatest cost in life and in, in organizations, including families. Low trust creates hidden agendas. It creates politics. It creates interpersonal conflict, interdepartmental rivalries, win-lose thinking, defensive and protective communication. Low trust slows down everything, every decision, every communication, and every relationship. Anybody ever lived this before? Everybody ever lived this in their personal life or their professional life, school life, team life, anything? This is where we have to be challenged. This is where we have to look at ourselves. You know, so often we, we as followers of Jesus Christ, ones who have, are, are, have, have made the confession that Jesus is Lord, find that our faith journey is grinded to a halt. So often we blame God, we fight others, we get called on things, and we just want to just make up excuses for why that's not right. We point fingers. And so often we go back to an external problem. Something's on the outside. If this wouldn't have happened to me, then we very rarely begin to internalize this and confront the fact that we actually suffer from this deficiency of trust. Deficiency in the trust in the one person who checks all the boxes. The one person who is actually qualified to be trusted. But watch what happens. Because if this was any other religion, any other formation of beliefs, 
what's being offered in this next three sets of verses will never be offered. Because even with the deficiency of mistrust, we have this beautiful invitation. We can drop these idols of mistrust and we can do something. So we see this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, remember the what before the why in a Greek argument, here we have the great high priest, the one who is over the wall, who has passed through heavens. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. Our confession being the fact that, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead and that we're saved. That's our confession, is that Jesus is Lord. He is the great high priest. He's the one that is interceding for us. He is the one that is offering for us. He is the one that is praying for us. He is the one that's standing shoulder to shoulder to the Father right now on our behalf in the kingly throne room of God. Why is he in the kingly throne room of God? Because he can be, because he's competent and qualified to be there. So we know we have that. Then we go into verse 15. For we do not have a high priest. We see the negative side of this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Double negative there. He cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet just like we are, yet he is without sin. He knows where we are. He knows what we deal with. He has been tempted to this deficiency of trust. He's been offered kingdoms upon kingdoms. He's been offered bread in the wilderness. He understands the temptations that we have. He knows the deep emotions that we experience. Yet he's without sin. Yet he always reflected God in his thoughts, actions, and being. And this is the most beautiful piece of it here as we see in verse 16, this mind-blowing statement. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence. Now, I want you to just kind of in your mind, we're not going to shout these out right now, but I want you to hold on To that thing this week where you fell short. I want you to hold on to that, that one deep longing that you have that just never seems to be met and just rubs you the wrong way with God. I want you to hold on to that, that thought that just always comes up. I'll tell you, mine is that just incessant desire to control where I want to manipulate the relationship. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I'm going to think what's about to be offered in this verse is that I am going to come before the righteous, holy, perfect God. And I don't, know you about, I don't know about you, but even like right now, if there was some dignitary coming and you're like, hey, Chris, you got to go meet this dignitary, I'd be like, can I like get a haircut or something or like get my voice right or go brush my teeth, you know, because I'm trying to think that I 
did I brush my teeth this morning? You know, like something. Like I'm going to try to get right before I go and meet whoever this dignitary is. And here we hold on to these deficiencies and these, these, these failures to reflect God in our thought, actions, and being. And then we realize that we are, we are being invited to go stand before this throne. And it's described as a throne of grace. I actually did this with, with one of my D groups the other day. I love of the throne of grace. I am not a poet. I, I, I'm not an artist. I, I wish I had those skills. I guess they're in there somewhere. But I long for someone to be able to describe to me a throne of grace. The guy in the department store says that he's Santa Claus. And what does the elf say to the Santa Claus? But you sit on a throne of lies. I can describe a throne of lies. It's a guy in a department store who's not really Santa Claus, right? That's obvious. And I could come up with other descriptions of a throne of grace, or a throne of, throne of lies. I could describe to you a throne of condemnation. I don't know if I have a part in my brain that can fully comprehend a throne of grace unmerited favor and we are to approach confidently holding on to all these missteps and failures and everything else that's there and we walk before the throne of grace and we know beyond the shadow of any doubt what's about to happen we know what we deserve we know that we don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve anything. All we deserve is condemnation and, and casting away and separation. And what do we find? And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that there is nothing that we can do to earn what we're about to receive is that we come before the throne of grace with confidence and what do we get? But we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we have to go back and begin the process of considering the things that we trust in, do they provide this? Does that relationship that I long for provide grace and mercy every single time? Does that, that business deal that I might be cutting corners on promise grace and mercy every single time? Does that promotion promise us? Does that relationship, or does the relationship with my kids promise us? Does my family promise us? Those self-medicating opportunities promise grace and mercy every single time. There's three calls here that we have to unpack. Number one, if you are not a follower of Jesus, this is the first time you've ever heard this, ever realized that you've got to confront some things that you trust. I'm glad you're here. 
the offer to you is why would you not explore this? Why would you not dive into this? Why would you not seek something that is offering grace and mercy every single time? That I can weigh all my expectations on it and it's going to follow through every single time with exactly what I need, with exactly how I need it. You know, the, the other one, I think this is one that we, we don't address often, at least I haven't, is those that are in here, this is a sad statistic, and like I said the other day, all statistics can basically be made up, but, you know, a sad statistic is there's actually a large portion of people in the church that attend regularly that are part of the process, and this is actually something that Hebrews addresses later in chapter 6 that aren't, in fact, followers of Jesus. I mean, consider this, this illustration I got from one of the commentaries, Warren Wiersbe, just great, great, great pastor and theologian. He says, imagine a train conductor is on a train and the train just starts moving and he's starting to check tickets. And he goes to the first person and he says, hey, let me, sir, let me see your ticket. And he checks the ticket. He says, sir, you, I'm sorry, but you're on the wrong train. And the guy's like, wait, what? And he hands the ticket back and said, you're on to get off on the next stop. And he goes to the woman and he says, hey, you're, you're on the wrong train. And the woman's like, but the, the brake man told me this was the train. And he goes to the next person, I'm sorry, but you, you're also on the wrong train. And the guy goes, I know this is the right train. And the conductor himself goes and checks and finds out, yes, it is in fact he himself that is on the wrong train. He constantly wanted to argue with those that were on the correct train. Nope, that's not right. Nope, not, that's not right. Nope, that's not right. But it never occurred to him until later that he, in fact, is on the wrong train. And so I want to throw that before you. you know, could this be you? Could it be you that has this perpetual consternation within yourself it's like, there's no way I can trust this guy. I'm just going to constantly build up all these things and do what I want to do, how I want to do it. Maybe it is, in fact, that you're resting on good works, you're resting on moral behavior, not on your confession as Jesus Christ is Lord. And then finally, for those that are followers of Jesus, you know, there's this beautiful scene. I'll be honest, I'll confess to you, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Aladdin, all right? I love it. I've had a mad crush on Jasmine, Princess Jasmine, since I was like nine or 10, whenever that thing came out, all right? Just throw it out there. Sorry, Rachel. She's my, she's my real life Princess Jasmine. Um, y'all can pick on me later. Um, just throwing it out there. But there's, there's the scene where you know, Aladdin is, is not the, the prince that everybody thinks he is. And he wants to go on a magic carpet ride with Jasmine. And he, he reaches, and Jasmine's like, no, nah, I'm good, but no, nah, I'm not going. That's crazy. And he says, do you trust me? And those words refer her back to a time where in the market and they were running from the guards that were trying to catch this notorious criminal Aladdin who stole an apple and some bread or something. And they have this, this crazy time. And, but he had said the same thing there. Do you trust me? And he followed through. 
And there's something to be said when he reaches his hand out and he says, do you trust me? It takes her back to that time, a time that I did trust, a time that he followed through. And I think it's a similar thing that we have right now because Jesus Christ is reaching out to you and he's asking you, do you in fact trust me? Because the beautiful thing about our salvation is we go back to the gospel constantly. That Jesus Christ himself, he lived, he died, he was buried and he rose again on the third day to give us access to God. And we constantly drive back to that. And he's crying out to you right now, do you trust him? Do you trust me? So that's what leads us into a time of reflection for communion of what we have in Christ Jesus. But before we do that, we go back and we say, hey, if I can trust this person, if I can trust Jesus, then what I can do is I can come before him and I can confess my sins. And I can say, you know what, Christ, you are right. I do have this failure to reflect God, my thoughts, actions, and being. I do have these idols that I cling to that keep me from running to you. But I can come before you now. I can come before the throne of grace and I can find mercy. I can receive grace. And so that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take just a minute or so. I wish we could take longer. Maybe we need to take longer. I don't know. If you do, there's room in here and coffee if you want to go and take a little longer to just rest in the goodness of who God is. Because that's the time. Every single time we confess sin, guess what we find? As followers of Jesus, grace and mercy. Those actions, that being that you have deep within you and the recesses of your soul. It's warring against trusting in Christ. Let's take that time now. Jesus, we, we come before you and we, we acknowledge you as the great high priest, the one that can sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who is without sin. Lord, it says in verse 16, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace. And so, Lord, I pray on behalf of our people that, that we've done that now. And, Lord, we will continue to do that. We'll continue to rest, put away our restlessness and rest in who you are and your completed work in us. So Lord, we ask all this in your name. Amen. As Jesus was with his disciples, he held up the bread and he said, I am about to be laid bare for your sins. My body is going to be broken on your behalf so yours doesn't have to be. So this is bread that represents my body that will be broken for you. Take it, eat it. Do this in remembrance of me.
then he held up the wine and he said, this is it's not just wine, but this is my blood that is going to be poured out for you. It's going to be poured out so you, every single time you ever need it, can come before the throne. I'm going to ensure that right now, and it's going to be forever. So this is my blood, which is poured out for you. Take it, drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Ben, if you want to come on up. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you. We, we praise you that we can trust you. <laughs> we, we attempt to trust so many other things that we end up and they fall through and then we end up mistrusting everything. But Lord, we know that you are authentic, you connect with us, and you are competent for us to put all of our trust in you. And Lord, sometimes, I'll be honest, I don't even know where to start. And so Holy Spirit, I, I have a feeling that there are other people in here that are the same way. Other brothers and sisters in Christ that are the same way. And so Lord, I pray that we would lock arms together and when things get dark, Lord, we can point each other to light. Lord, work in my heart. Lord, I want to confidently approach the throne of grace. Thank you for allowing me to do this. I praise you, Lord, as we come into a time of worship through song, let it be real. Lord, if, if someone needs to come up and pray, Lord, draw them to do that. Let them fill out a connect card. We'll pray for them, Lord. But most importantly, let us worship you in spirit and truth right now. We love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Y'all stand as we worship. Through the shadows of my soul. 